the mining world opportunities are scarcer than ever. Are mining executives now sending mercenaries to win mineral rights through war? Until recently, even Barlow commanded the mercenaries. He's implicated in a worldwide web of war, greed and intrigue. And we come under fire wherever we work. Um, we are contracted by governments that have conflicts, internal conflicts. Everyone in the company knows that we are employed in high-risk areas and therefore we are armed. Anyone who understands the term mercenary and who understands our company will, whether it's inside our company or outside the company, deny that we are mercenaries. For a start, governments all over the world make use of private contractors to train their armies. Our client governments are no exception to that. The fall of the apartheid regime spelt the end of an era for South African Special Forces soldiers. After years of combat in the bitter bush wars against the ANC, many soldiers found it impossible to return to ordinary life. When we lost Dolph and Tonga, it was approximately on the 2nd of April 1994. We had to attack a town, I would roughly say approximately 30 kilometers south of the Zairean border. And we had 80 bombs to fire into the enemy base. But we drew, we drew fire, enemy fire, I saw traces going in and out the helicopter, smoke and all fumes of the petrol um, coming out of the, the other helicopter. And we know it was hit very, very, very badly. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Tonight's topic is about the private military corporations, which were formerly called basically just mercenaries uh, not too long ago. And before that, they've had a long history. Uh, but before we dive into the topic, let me introduce my co-hosts. Uh, Nick and Hans, please say hello. Good morning. Hello, everyone. And real quick, we had a very generous donation on Bitcoin again. Uh, this is from the wallet, starting with character 1FB3. Thank you very much. We always appreciate that. Uh, keep us going in, uh, in spirit, if not in actual um, financial justification for the time we put into this but it means a lot that people do care uh, about the time we put into this so that's uh that, that's a big reason why we put in the work uh so for tonight's topic um i read uh i read a couple of sources on this and first of all i am by no means a military expert uh, my understanding of this stuff is just from a lot of reading listening asking questions talking to people in the military and what's uh, what's interesting about this topic to me is that the the evolution of the sort of world system of international arms and balances of powers 
uh, is has always been in flux, uh, but I think ever since kind of the globalization of the, the world economy, uh, we haven't really ever seen the type of international nature of the the movement of financial resources uh, joined with military resources in a very stateless way. I mean, if you've ever played that game, uh, Metal Gear Solid, uh, one of the, uh, the the games actually profiled this concept in the not-too-distant future of basically where the, the world governments have taken a backseat to corporations, which is ultimately what we're living in in the sort of neoliberal world order, and also a, a world where private military contractors have taken uh, the forefront for actually enforcing the power structure as opposed to national government militaries. So that's kind of an interesting uh, setting to kind of frame the discussion around. Uh, and the, the stuff that really was inspiring that game, I think, was coming from the Iraq War, uh, the second one that is after uh, Bush the second decided to, uh, in my opinion, impress his father and blow up uh, Saddam's stronghold. And when he did that, he basically sent in, obviously, the, the Marines and the Army and the Air Force and all the U.S. standard military forces to do the dirty work of actually uh, knocking out the opposition's military. Uh, but all the other stuff, and this was sort of in the spirit of kind of the first business president and everything, uh, he tried to privatize a lot of the services, and a lot of that stuff was kickbacks to his buddies and Halliburton and, and whatnot in the military-industrial complex. Uh, but one of the biggest companies to come to the forefront was Blackwater. It became very infamous because of its uh, contracts with the government. There was a, a no-bid contract uh, given to them for Paul Bremer's uh, personal security service to the tune of $30 million. They were also awarded other contracts where allegedly they did bid against other companies, but they were able to win at least $300 million of contracts. And I would estimate it's probably higher than that, but some of this stuff is not really talked about. Uh, so they uh, they became infamous after there was a, a big shooting in uh, Baghdad or one of the cities there that they were basically providing services for. And they're not really supposed to engage uh, in military activity. It's really more of a defensive posture where they're guarding convoys and moving supplies, basically providing logistics and security services as opposed to offensive services. But uh, there were 15 Iraqis that uh, were killed, and then the Iraqi government got very, very upset at this. And so it became a big political topic in the U.S. Congress uh, to the tune of uh, basically all the Democrats basically using it as sort of a, an opportunity to attack the Bush administration. And then basically Eric Prince, the guy that was running it, he's a former Navy SEAL, uh, he basically fled the country. I mean, he after the the whole mess, uh, this was actually uh, it, this uh, this killing happened in 2005, and then the hearings were going on around 2007, uh, right before Obama got into office. And then when he did, he basically was sort of reading the tea leaves, and he decided to uh, to get out. And he ended up working for the uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, one of the the sheiks over there, as, as his personal bodyguard. And we'll talk about what he's up to later, I think, because this is sort of getting into where this industry is going. But this was really the most kind of recent example of this very uh, controversial industry. Um, but uh, the, the, the origins of private security have really been around since the, the prehistoric times, if you could probably 
extrapolate from the historical times because if you read history, you'll see that basically providing security what is what basically all people of power uh, want. I mean, they want to have a, a private guard because they're obviously uh, possessors of large amounts of resources and wealth, and so they're, they're heavy targets. And so the feudal system in Europe, for example, was built around having uh, large numbers of, of knights and professional guards to protect the nobles. And before that, you know, if you, if just sticking to European history for a second, uh, the, the Romans, uh, the emperors had the Praetorian guards, uh, and these people were actually notorious for assassinating the emperors. And so you can never really trust these types. Uh, but it was always a question of, do I have a large standing army, uh, whereby my generals may become too powerful or, or do I keep them small and disposable to a degree? Uh, and then not having them tied to a particular flag keeps them somewhat um, cold-blooded in the sense that they'll basically work for the highest bidder. And in a sense, you can trust that to a degree more than you might from a guy who's ideologically motivated or uh, emotionally motivated or whatever. A guy who's working for money is basically a very simple animal. And if you can outbid uh, your competitor, you probably have got his loyalty. And so th this stuff goes back to, you know, thousands of years ago. Uh, and what really happened, though, was when nationalism in Europe especially became a thing, and, and Hans and I were actually just talking about Napoleon uh, before we started the call. It's actually very apropos. Uh, the, the concept of having a, a national army uh, was really kind of a, a thing that evolved um, not too long ago. I mean, probably in the last two, three hundred years, and the loyalties of the soldier to the king, queen, or country is sort of something that I think we all, as Americans, are much more familiar with uh, in terms of the military culture in this country as to why, ostensibly, a soldier would go to fight. He would fight for his, his people as opposed to himself or for his king or something. It's more for the nation. And this is actually somewhat of a new concept. And so one of the, I think, reasons the Blackwater Company, for example, is so controversial is because this goes against the more recent concept of having the military provided solely by the government. But again, if you go before this time, things were much more chaotic. If you go to uh, Renaissance Italy, there, there were basically, this is what uh, da Vinci was working on. He was working on uh, weapons schematics for all these different princes who are basically trying to defend their own little fiefdoms. And the, the notion of having very small, independent, private militaries for your individual use as sort of a local uh, baron or something like that uh, is actually much more common in history. So it's interesting to see the controversy that has arisen recently because of the usage of these guys, but it's actually something that is returning uh, from, from the past. So with that sort of background, I'm, I'm wondering what you guys think about uh, private military contracting or mercenaries in general. Well, it's interesting. Um, in the, the Thirty Years' War, which is this, uh, you know, basically, I, I think of the Thirty Years' War as one of the first world wars almost, um, given the amount of death I mean, one statistic that I remember off the top of my head, uh, I think I've said this before, that something like a third of the population of all Czechs in Europe were wiped out in that war. Um, it was a, a massive war. Essentially, everyone in Europe was involved in one way or another. Um, but, we, you know, there was still this 
reticence towards uh, sort of nationalism or widespread unification policies. And not only did you have fiefdoms and you had nobles and you had some remnants of the feudal structure, um, but you had uh, plenty of trade network institutions like the Hanseatic League. Um, and later, uh, although this takes this comes it comes about much later after the Thirty Years' War, probably the most infamous of these networks that employed many mercenaries was the East India Company, um, the British East India Company, and the Dutch East India Company were, were both very much um, like this. But you had a, a multitude of trade networks and merchant associations. Um, and one of the things about the Thirty Years' War is that even guilds had their own mercenaries that they would contract for for various purposes in this war uh, and before it as well uh, to achieve various um, uh, achieve various political ends. Um, so Europe was becoming this widely chaotic place because the population was growing, and yet there was an effervescence of, uh, of troops and, and an effervescence of people that uh, were expendable and uh, had nothing really better to do and maybe had some formal military training and so would become uh, part of a mercenary group that would receive contracts and would execute certain um, certain parameters on those contracts. In the Thirty Years' War, this became so problematic and most historians of the Thirty Years' War actually blame the prolonging of the war on these mercenary groups that were it was not always clear who exactly they were fighting for. So oftentimes there would be an attempt to reach a truce between more formalized political institutions that represented a lot of people. Um, but but you know, a, a company of German mercenaries, perhaps, contracted by a trade association might, for reasons that did not have to do with this larger political war going on, uh, attack a, a small Polish uh, town or might attack a a town somewhere in the south of France for, um, for various purposes. Thus, this kind of leads to this weird situation where the truce falls apart, the political talks fall apart, and everyone goes back to war because all everyone, all anyone knows is that a unit of German uh, people speaking German and wearing typical German armor and using typical German weapons and tactics uh, attacked some uh, region that was believed to be of you know belonging to a French noble or to, to France itself. Uh, so the, the war was made much worse by the fact that there was a disorganized military structure and a disorganized state structure. That's where the, the Treaty of Westphalia, which many kind of regard as the, the, the inception of the modern nation state in the 17th century, really was created with... Uh, the chief issue in mind when it was created was this problem of mercenaries, um, that mercenaries were no longer sort of um, ephemeral. They didn't just sort of exist uh, as a band for a year or two and then fall apart and people would go back to their lives. It became a profession, it became a very lucrative profession, and there were more and more of them. Um, there had There was probably tens of thousands of mercenaries, if not a, probably 100,000 active in the Thirty Years' War. Uh, that committed all kinds of uh, atrocities and engaged uh, against political armies frequently. Um, so the the idea was that we need to formalize nations, we need to formalize uh, militaries around those nations because we, we can't have these roaming bands of contracted military employees, basically, who 
um, might kick off hostilities again and lead to mass death. Uh, so it, when the piece of it, the Treaty of Westphalia was basically signed and put into effect, this military structure didn't really, I'm sorry, this mercenary structure didn't die, but it certainly took a blow. And the number of mercenaries was reduced drastically in Europe um, from there on out. And the, this idea of institutions of any kind being able to engage in military activity became more and more and more shunned and became less and less possible. There were obviously some institutions, like I mentioned, um, both the British and the Dutch East India companies that did continue to do this for various purposes, although they often did not do it in Europe. They did it outside of Europe, which is where they were able to get away with it. Um, I think that later on, uh, you, you'll see in the 20th century, uh, really the return of mercenaries sometime after World War II. There's 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 infamous like former Nazis like Otto Skorzeny that basically became mercenaries for hire, became guns for hire, became assassins. Um, many of them ended up being employed by the new German federal state uh, after the war. But th there were you know there were former SS officers who were being employed by Israel. There were former SS officers being employed by uh, the CIA, the OSS, and the CIA. I mean, yeah. The, World War II really shattered, I think, a lot of these assumptions about who you know that you belong to a specific military. And in the rise of the, you know, the democratic capitalist worldview, uh, it made sense that all of a sudden war could become much of a, a business. I mean, that was really the rise of modern defense contractors. Uh, and I think alongside that, you saw the rise of private security corporations that offered. Um, not just security personnel, which is a fancy way of saying mercenary now, security personnel, security detail, um, uh, but also logistics services, maintenance services, cleaning services, IT services, uh, all kinds of various services and products um, and consulting that is really the new mercenary structure. Uh, it goes much more beyond just um, direct violence. It really is more about um, maintaining national public I, I guess you could call them public military structures with it, it's it it's sort of not it's not devolving so much as it's it's a new evolution of this old way that uh, much of the western world behaved in regards to um you know its approach to militaries well, it, it's hard as, it's hard to generalize um, I, I would say that there are examples of what you're talking about no question especially in the united states defense system as it's sort of fought, you know, 10 simultaneous wars. I mean, this nonsense about two wars. I mean, how many, how many places are the U S uh, forces engaged in, and at, at any given time, I mean, they don't even admit half of them. So just take the ones they admit to. I mean, the middle East, you've got stuff, uh, in, in Asia to a degree, uh, in the Philippines, you've got, uh, active deployments all over in, potentially hot zones like uh, the DMZ in South Korea versus North Korea. Uh, there's bases all over the world. So there, there is a tremendous amount of uh, just logistics that the United States government has decided to kind of put out to uh, the, the lowest bidder, so to speak. But in, in more uh, reasonably sized 
uh, to kind of put a subjective term on it, uh, militaries or operations around the world, uh, there is a variety of usage of these types of services, uh, which, you know, in the 80s, and you know, if you look at Soldier of Fortune, this was sort of the, uh, the very famous cataloging of these types of people. It's typically in places like Africa where the governments are constantly in flux. A lot of that came from the decolonization of Africa, whereby the, the powers were constantly trying to win over uh, very scarce resources. And typically it was over uh, things like diamonds or oil that are, that are easy to export for sale. Uh, and the, these conflicts have, have gone on to this day. Uh, and not too long ago, you know, Sierra Leone was one of the, the big conflicts where uh, one of the, uh, the more infamous companies that came out of South Africa, actually, uh, Executive Outcomes, was employed. Uh, and so typically what they're, they're, in, uh, they're given charge with is basically securing the, the resources from theft from basically rival powers, rebel armies, essentially, within the country. Uh, th- and this has gone on ever since, you know, the end of the war uh, and the, the massive decolonizations. Um, I think Biafra was like one of the regions in, in the Congo where there, there was a, a very big uh, resistance movement that was basically, you know, just trying to grab resources. And then in order to secure them, the government, which can sort of conscript its own soldiers, but doesn't quite have the sophistication of maybe a Western army, will hire some of the, the formerly trained uh, British SAS forces or uh, French Foreign Legion forces to go go and fight for them uh, effectively, and then basically put down any rebel resistance. That's that that's been the kind of more kinetic version of the the mercenaries, as opposed to the kind of the more softer, more uh, Wall Street press release, uh, public IPO type company that you're going to get in the American version, which does have an enormous military budget. But in in terms of you know the smaller countries they can actually get quite a bit done on maybe you know 50 million dollars uh, which is still a sizable sum for them but it's obviously nothing compared to the trillion dollars that the United States spends on its own military uh, and they can they can basically equip some guys 50 guys with uh, a couple of Russian helicopters uh, some uh, some very good uh, sniper rifles or machine guns that can go up in the air and take care of business against basically a, a rebel army that is running around uh, on foot with uh, with a couple of assault rifles, but really no night vision, no no sophisticated uh, weaponry or training for that matter. And so th- this has been you know the other side, the darker side of the the PMCs, mercenaries that have been happening for fifty plus years. Yeah, I would say that in. The, the latter half of the Cold War is really when you start to see this become a problem. Um, it becomes a problem in Africa, for sure. You do see it in Latin America for various reasons. You actually see it in Latin America uh, mostly due to the drug wars that went on in the 70s and 80s. Uh, both A lot of the drug kingpins brought in mercenaries and uh, former military advisors from around the world, even Israel. Uh, like showed up to help out Pablo Escobar's little uh, revolutionaries out in the jungle, uh, but you know the Colombian government, uh, the Brazilian uh, military dictatorship, uh, the Argentine government, the, the, you know uh, Pinochet, they all sort of used international mercenaries 
from around the world, including Americans, for uh, for various purposes. You also saw it a bit in Vietnam. There were a lot of private contractors who were very involved in uh, in the Vietnamese War, uh, particularly towards the end of the war as things started to really fall apart. And uh, it, there was a political need to pull formal American troops out. So the people that were really behind, left behind in Vietnam to continue to work before everything fell apart were a mix of intelligence officers and intelligence assets and uh, federal co- and military contractors, basically mercenaries. Uh, and you did see it to an extent in the Middle East. Uh, there, was, there was some level of that going on, mostly having to do with um, Israeli Arab politics and Cold War Arab politics. There were plenty of private groups that were running around. A lot of them were Arab, uh, who were employed by Arabs to by Arab governments to handle internal dissent, to handle uh, you know intelligence officers from hostile Arab countries. Uh, you know, one of the big cases was this uh, spat between Syria and Saudi Arabia in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, I'm trying to remember the specifics, but basically, uh, Syria was having to hire um, a mix of like former European military contractors and uh, Americans who uh, were trying to find Saudi agents within uh, in Syria because the old man Assad was basically trying to you know corral control over the country. And was finding all these Saudis who were, you know, trying to set them up for various terrorist attacks and other things. Um, but as the war, as the Cold War really wound down, uh, I think that Africa remained a hot spot for this sort of activity. But the, the new activity was really in the Balkans. Uh, the Balkan Wars that, you know, really started immediately after the fall of communism. Uh, there were, was where... Plenty of American contractors showed up. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Croatia, and if you give me a moment, I can I think find uh, the company that. Uh, well, while you're looking for that, I think yeah. Bosnia had a lot of these guys as well, and I'm I'm just speculating here, but I I got to imagine that because that was fought uh, primarily under. Clinton's watch and he was more of a sort of a hands-off domestic policy guy didn't really want to get involved in the foreign policy stuff too much and he was the smart bomb president I'm not going to invade Iraq I'm just going to drop a few bombs in Saddam when he goes into the no-fly zones and whatnot I would assume that he wanted to minimize the amount of official ground troop activity by the U.S. military and so he may have contracted out some of this stuff I know that Blackwater for example did a lot of stuff for the CIA and so I would imagine that a lot of these guys were basically going in without an f- official flag, sort of like what happened when the, um, the supposed Russian forces, I mean, we're, we're basically just going to presume that at this point, went into Crimea, and they weren't wearing a Russian flag on them. Uh, so, you know, we can call them undercover or mercenaries or, or whatever, but I think the concept is, is the same, that if you don't want official... Uh, blame for any atrocities that go on you hire some of these disposable assets as carl weathers or uh arnold schwarzenegger would invariably use in the movie predator which was kind of like a demonstration and 
in some ways of what a mercenary ragtag army would look like when they're just sort of put together on these kind of hush hush missions that would go into a, a third world country that is not going to be reported on. So I don't know if you found what you were looking for, but that was what I was thinking about. Yeah. Why might uh, be, be being used so in a place like that. The Croatia was using, um, a company called MPRI and that stood for military professional resources incorporated, which is about as vague as you can get. Of course it was based in Northern Virginia, as most of these companies are, if they're not based out of the United Kingdom or South Africa, they are based out of Northern Virginia. And uh, it was led by a, a, a former U.S. Army General, Craddock, and um, they basically offered, on paper, they offered a variety of training services. Uh, but what this really meant, and what this ended up meaning in practice was that as the war sort of imploded, and it seemed like the United States was wavering on which side to take. It ended up sort of de facto helping the Croatians, but um, the Croatians weren't going to wait for that. And they basically brought in America, this, these American contractors who offered training, but in reality, it always ended up becoming, you know, well, while you're training with us, why don't you kind of help us on these missions? So more than likely, it, it there was a, there was actually a court case that had to do with this, and basically, uh, uh, there were a lot of Serbs who lived in this area who basically sued, tried to sue the corporation, sue the United States government in Chicago. They basically alleged that these contractors went out with uh, the Croatian armed forces and committed atrocities and helped them, you know, go house to house, block to block, clear, um, clear hostile Serbs and, and so on. Um, I think the whole thing ended up being rejected. Like they didn't even bother hearing the case, but typically what you, what, what it's this, this idea, and you often see this of like military advisors was, you know, typically how the United States military, not the professional services, um, you know, private companies, but the military will often start these conflicts by saying, we're sending advisors. Uh, and that was how we got involved in Vietnam. And the, the count of advisors went up to like 30,000 very quickly. And of course, there were reports coming back. These guys weren't just advisors. They were, you know, running operations. They were going out and rooting out VC. They were engaged in various, uh, you know, actual battles and skirmishes with Viet Cong and sometimes NVA. Uh, they were doing search and destroy missions. They, you know, it was much more than just advisement and training. So when you send in these kind of advisors, what you're really offering, what's and what's not on paper, uh, this is always like a back room agreement, is that we will basically give you trained American soldiers to help your units function better, even in the field. Not necessarily in the training for the field, but they will go with you in the field and they will lead units. Um, so th there was a lot of this going on. Sierra Leone was another one that had a lot of problems and MPRI and other firms were, and this is in the 90s, were contracted out to basically do the same thing. Uh, then in that case, that was more of a rebel army situation that was not as much just like a, a real national war going on between, like as it was between Ser the Serbs and the Croatians. Um, but 
this this is a common tactic that you'll see, and I think you were describing this, and that you these mercenaries will basically put down um, rebel movements, and they are typically embedded inside of existing African military structure to uh, to basically actually do real wet work. Yeah, for a while, uh, a lot of former South African uh, mm-hmm. soldiers, especially after the fall of the apartheid regime. Yeah. were basically used in Mozambique, were used in Angola, they were used in uh, Zambia, they were used all in Tanzania for various security purposes. But oftentimes it involved like, you know, going out and getting in firefights and yeah. helping local cops, you know, kill a drug lord or kill some criminal gang. Uh, that was, they were sort of infamous for being involved in uh, sort of the post-apartheid African military. Yeah, I mean, what, what happened they was they all got do. fired. I mean, it was yeah. basically they lost yeah. their pensions. They they couldn't work for the government anymore. But they had basically a, a first world army set of skills that they could then go out and basically uh, that there was uh, the example that was given uh, in Sierra Leone was they the, the government there was was not able to get a handle on uh, the rebel army. It was called the, the RUF, the Revolutionary. United Front, I think is what it stood for. And it, it was basically over diamonds. It's like, who's who's going to control the diamond mines, uh, which which are literally just plucked out of the ground by slave laborers. And this is where the, the child soldier stuff became very infamous, was uh, the RUF was recruiting. Uh, just They'd just go into villages, you know, burn the houses down, and then they'd take all the, the young men, and they would give them... Um, it, they'd give them a machete. It's like, you know, go take the machete and chop your mother's arm off, you know, or otherwise we'll shoot you. And th- this is often like other children telling these kids to do this. And so they, uh, they, they were notorious for being brutal uh, and they would be armed with these weapons that would then go into the mines and just take them over. Uh, and you, you didn't have to have any sophistication. You basically just, you ordered people to dig literally with their hands or shovels to pull the stuff out of the, the dirt. And then they would just sift it out of the ground and, there you had uh, potentially millions of dollars and they would use those weapons or the, uh, they would use those, those minerals to buy weapons. And so the, the government couldn't get a handle on it because the, the tactic was so simple and they could hide in the forests, and they, they just, they couldn't deal with it. And so they ended up hiring these guys from South Africa and the, the most famous company was executive outcomes headed by this guy named even Barlow. Uh, and if you're a, uh, anti-racist you can just paint the picture the hollywood story of how evil this guy would be because he just he has the the long blonde hair he looks like a boar or an afrikaner guy and and basically he's out shooting black people from a helicopter Uh, but all they did was they went in and they would they would basically defend these villages or the mines from incursions from the rebels and the problem was they couldn't identify the civilians from the rebels. And so essentially if something was taken over, they just shoot everybody and they would do it, you know, using modern weapons and, and techniques. And it only took a very small number of people to, to get a handle on the situation. And it got, uh, it got so bad that the RUF was basically agreeing to a peace settlement provided that executive outcomes got out of the country. And so the government agreed to that. And as soon as they left, the RUF basically went back to their old, old shenanigans and they they took over the mines and then it was a another several years of conflicts until the un showed up and there's a very uh very funny uh picture of the guy who was leading this uh 
Blue Helmet Force. He's he's like he's a ostensibly an Indian guy, like his name is Indian and he he's, he has an Indian accent, but he must be from the part of India that borders uh, China because he has uh, he has very narrow eyes and very funny looking guy other than that. He basically doesn't have eyebrows and so he painted them on with like a marker in the interview that I was watching of this guy and he even admitted that the UN was so incompetent at this stuff that basically having a, a private military force come in would probably be a wise move for the government because his forces couldn't do it. Uh, he was using, because I guess he's from India, he, he knew how to recruit these types of guys. He was using uh, Gurkhas from, I guess the that, that's like a term, I think, from the, the British Empire days when they were ruling uh, India. But he would use these guys. And, and they had to resort to basically the same tactics that Executive Outcomes was doing because they, they couldn't do peacekeeping. I mean, they were admitting that the job at hand was basically to be aggressive. It wasn't a defensive war because you had to go out and get these guys to, to disincentivize them from doing what they're doing. It wasn't just a matter of setting up a, a security fence because they didn't have enough men for that. They had to actually go out and punish these people. And so they ended up doing things like painting their helmets brown because it was too obvious when they were walking through the forest, these stupid blue helmets. And they, they kind of had to diminish the association with the UN because they wanted to scare their enemy. And they couldn't do that with the sort of very lovey-dovey stuff that the UN was sort of known for back then. And this was happening in around like 2000. And there's a very good war, uh, excuse me, a movie about this uh, conflict with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, it's called Blood Diamond. I'd recommend it. And it basically talks about how how brutal this stuff was and how a lot of the, the South Africans were, were sort of just hired into this because their own country was falling apart and they they were looking for something that they could they could do to make money because Africa is just a such a, a charnel house that they they were looking for places where they could apply their skills and a lot of the guys that went into this uh, this type of work um, they didn't see it as glamorous it was basically just a way to make money and it was a paycheck for them so that, that that's their more of their side I mean the the, the other side is basically they they were kind of uh, coming in with a first world set of military skills and hardware up against a third world army. And it was a sort of a no contest fight and it wasn't, uh, wasn't honorable, but they, they got actually uh, what the governments wanted done. And so in their defense, you know, they were basically doing the job the governments couldn't do. Yeah. Uh, didn't, I mean, executive outcomes, if you guys are interested, there's, there's, they're probably one of the most infamous, and uh, uh, very on the nose of these kind of groups. They don't even try and hide the, what they do. Um, and that's mostly because they are almost entirely based in Africa, uh, where obviously rules are a little slim. They basically, in Sierra Leone, they basically launched a coup. <laughs> and they actually succeeded in a coup on behalf of certain interests in Sierra Leone in the 90s. Um, and they tried the same thing in 2004 in Equatorial Guinea, and they actually fucked up. That was one of the few times where they really did not succeed, and several of them got arrested. Um, there was a big international outcry about it. Um, Simon Mann, who, who was uh, basically one of the co-founders of Black, uh, sorry, not Blackwater, uh, Executive Outcomes, um, was implicated very clearly in this 
he's he's an interesting guy. He actually went on to talk to say later that he uh, he was personally asked by certain American interests to help start the Iraq War. That he was uh, basically being con. Someone proposed a contract to him and others to help do some kind of false flag operation or try and lure Saddam into doing something, and they needed plausible deniability, so they were planning on using these mercenaries who already had a bad reputation in case things went wrong uh, to get involved in Iraq and get Saddam to do something dumb, Um, which is interesting because... He's basically, you know, his life has been ruined. He doesn't really work as a mercenary anymore. Um, so you wouldn't really have any reason to not hold back anymore. Uh, but he, he, not a lot has been heard from him since. I think that came out in 2013. And he's sort of dropped off the radar. Most of those guys from Executive Outcomes have dropped off the radar because it was a total failure. Um, there was some level of this going on in South America I had mentioned that had more to do with um, like DynCorp, DynCorp. I don't know. I'm not. I've never been clear how you say that. DYN Corp. I think it's DynCorp. Uh, DynCorp. Okay. Yeah. Um, so DynCorp. Yeah, DynCorp. yeah they, they were involved deeply in Colombia, and so basically in the '90s, um, the drug wars had sort of subsided. The CIA had really f- fulfilled its destiny and taken over the drug trade. So. Uh, now there was all this other work to be done and, and sort of um, you know patrolling and, and sort of pacifying rural areas of uh, Colombia, of Chile, of, of other places. So DynCorp uh, was basically billed as being involved in the war on drugs, even though the war on drugs had sort of wound down uh, a lot. And they were mostly being used for intelligence gathering and training, this quote-unquote training, which is really just dispatching operatives into the field with Colombian military to uh, you know, take out uh, what I believe was probably the FARC, uh, which is this long-standing communist rebel group in the jungles of Colombia that uh, has deep ties to Venezuela. Um, there was a lot, basically in the 90s, as uh, the Cold War died down and people stopped giving a shit about what happened in Latin America, um, and a lot of the institutions of Latin America, the Brazilian uh, military dictatorship, Pinochet, and uh, the, Peron, the Peronistas, all three of the major forces that kind of held South America in particular together, uh, faced existential crises of one or another. And Mexico went into uh, a deep state of catastrophe throughout the 90s with various currency crises. Um, Latin America became a very sort of wild and dangerous place. This is where the modern human trafficking networks really start coming up. And in order to combat a lot of this, the Latin American governments contracted out various American and British uh, corporations to do this work for them because they fundamentally couldn't trust their own militaries. Which is an interesting twist on the Westphalian system in that, you know, what happens when you can't trust your own military? to carry out the operations that need to be carried out because they're on the take or because they just don't want to or because they don't have the equipment or the training to, you know, does it become, do you then have sort of justification to seek out uh, third parties to do this sort of work for you, maybe even against your own citizens? Well, one of the historical concerns about having a standing army is that it's going to 
as sort of a civilian government, it's going to take you over. And we've seen this in so many places around the world recently. Uh, I think Egypt has a military dictatorship now. Latin America has probably since its uh, its early days of European colonization has just had a countless number of coups and military governments basically knocking each other off. And so what you might want to do if you are quote-unquote democratically elected is to keep your military not so powerful, powerful enough to basically keep you know, business as usual going, but not powerful enough to uh, take over the government. And so one of the ways they might be able to do that is by hiring out uh, on a contract basis some of these military services. So Adam, uh, maybe I should ask what really drew you to this topic? Because this is a topic that you've been interested in for a while. I think you've been talking about doing this for like a year. This has been on our little spreadsheet for a long time. Um, yeah. Um, why, why is it, I think that maybe it's, it has to do with the fact that we're seeing sort of the, the planet start to unravel. Yeah. And maybe there is a potential potentiality that these will become more widespread and more, uh, diverse. Well, well, not, not to sound, um, hyperbolic or fantastical but you know the world that was painted in that video game that i mentioned uh, metal gear uh it, it doesn't seem that far far-fetched to me I, I i know people in the u.s military for example that tell me on at least a monthly if not a weekly basis how bad it's getting how how poor quality recruits they're they're even able to get they can't even get enough recruits and, and they're having to lower their standards to the point where they're they're getting people that uh, can barely operate the, the equipment they're supposedly supposed to be in charge of and it just doesn't seem like the unipolar world is going to last i mean i'm not you know innovative or insightful and in, in making that statement but it just seems fairly obvious at this point that the american empire is kind of falling apart and i i do predict there is going to be more of this uh rogue not rogue state but just like rogue agencies formally or informally holding more and more power and you know if you really get want to get uh, apocalyptic about it or mad max about it in america um i i do see the Obviously, we've seen an erosion of the respect uh, and the trust placed in local law enforcement, as as well as you know national law enforcement, if that is even a thing. If you just look at our southern border, I don't even know what their job is anymore. I mean, they don't do anything uh, to protect the country. And so where do we put our trust? I mean, we put our trust in our own people. And by extension, you know, we, we trust people who are going to work for money, like I was saying before. Uh, and so private security services may even be something we see more of domestically. But, I mean, I think internationally we're, we're already seeing more of it, uh, especially in these, these emerging markets, frontier markets. I mean, you know, we can save the Eric Prince saga uh, for the end if you want. But, you know, what he's doing now is basically protecting the Chinese in Africa, he works for the Chinese now. Uh, his company is has direct Chinese investment, and so th this type of it's it's not even like internationalism. It's sort of like a, everybody's a mercenary. Like Eric Prince is kind of the poster child for this. I mean, he, his sister works in the Trump administration, but he's basically working for the Chinese. Like, 
who, who, who are these people loyal to? I don't know. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't, I can't trust anybody anymore. So I just see this model as something that I think we're going to see a lot more of. And it was something that kind of intrigued me because of all the things I've just said. And I think to understand this going forward is going to be important. Basically, what Adam is saying is that the only hope that the white race has is to develop Metal Gear. It may come to that, Nick. <laughs> What's interesting about it is that, uh, you know, increasingly we've seen the rise of the the modern Russian mercenary. Um, it wasn't too, I think it was last year or maybe 2017, where it was reported that almost 200 Russian mercenaries were slaughtered in some kind of confrontation with the U.S. military in Syria. Uh, effectively, it's not really clear all the specifics of this. There was a, there was a congressional hearing about it. Um, but basically, there were a bunch of these Russian mercenary grunts that weren't really well-armed or well-trained or like given great instructions because they basically were told to clear clear some uh, field and then wind up on the other side and set up position. Well, they tried to do this at night and not realizing that the U.S. military was surveying this open clearing and basically just bombarded them with artillery and killed them all uh, for the most part, not not even realizing who these guys were. They uh, probably just assumed they were some terrorist cell or whatever. Um, later, it was revealed that they were mostly Russians and that they worked for various Russian contracting groups. Um, and we saw this in Ukraine, obviously, that there was this, uh, there wasn't a lot of these little green men, as they were called. Uh, some of it was clearly like, there, there was a weird element in that there were Russian military officers who were clearly going rogue and were taking military assets out of Russia with them. Whether or not they were permitted to is not really the question. I think it's... Uh, has more to do with the question of why exactly are there rogue Russian military officers who feel comfortable taking military hardware out of the country and just moving it into another country to engage in a conflict? That's interesting. There's all kinds of foreigners in Ukraine. Yeah, that's interesting to me. That's interesting that it does show, A, that there's probably some kind of fundamental weakness in in the Russian state that they couldn't really prevent this from escalating. Uh, B, I think that it could just be not a weakness, but it was very intentional and that the Russians are basically looking at American and British modern foreign policy and seeing that this, this uh, trend of utilizing front companies for the U.S. military basically has been very successful. Taking your best soldiers after they've done a several tours um, won several commendations and basically offering them a triple paycheck and uh, you know access to new materials and, and in exchange for engaging in various clandestine missions uh, around the world. Uh, I think that the Russians have seen that as being successful and realizing that they too have a large military complex with a lot of former soldiers who um, certainly earned their scars in Chechnya and Dagestan. Um, and in various anti-terrorism operations, now they're looking for a paycheck and for a way to expand foreign policy. So uh, you mentioned Eric Prince is basically working for the Chinese government and is you know, their sort of front company for their military. 
Um, it's going to be, you know, interesting in 10 years if the Chinese sort of forego this this notion of bringing in Americans and instead uh, just utilizing Chinese units. Um, the one drawback to that is that the Chinese do not have any modern combat experience. No, really. they don't. That's right. They don't. Yeah, they, they basically they compete just like in anything else on price. I mean, if you look at Huawei as kind of the exemplar company of how the Chinese do business, they, they do rampant IP theft and then they, they just they do it for cheaper. And so you could sort of apply that, I, I guess, to the military model. But so much of an effective fighting force is actually are these people trained properly? Are they experienced enough to, to know how to fight? Because it's not so much having the right hardware and the right you know, color camouflage on your uniform. It's, it's knowing how to do things, and that takes experience. And so if they're not actively engaged like the U.S. military has been ever since, uh, well, God knows when, I mean, 200-plus years, um, th- they're not going to be able to fight as well. You know, It doesn't really matter necessarily if... Uh, you know, they've got 106 IQ average. Fighting is, is is a skill that has been honed over the centuries, especially in Europe. And I think European peoples are, are quite good at it, uh, just looking at their history and where they came from. And the Chinese have had their share of, of civil wars, no question about it. But they've, they've usually done it uh, in China. They haven't really gone outside of their borders. And so, you know, their success overseas is probably going to be somewhat similar to their their past and i don't really anticipate too much of that going on now that being said and we're not talking about like major uh, military operations the a lot of what the private military companies or contracting services do is kind of like what they claim in public is that they just do the basic grunt work that the u.s military or other militaries that have a large bureaucracy don't really do that well or very efficiently and so, in that sense, well, they, yeah, it, the, the Chinese could do logistics or yeah. something like that. But hmm. the experience pays more than anything else. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I mean, you take what what does the average soldier make employed in the Zog bureaucracy? It's like what twenty k a year, something like that. Yeah. And the, I mean, um, you you can make like quarter million dollars if you do it right. uh, private. Right. Right. And you know, you don't get a, a pension. You don't really get uh, the GI Bill and all the other junk that Uncle Sam offers you, but it's basically you probably already got that, or you may be useless to you. I mean, it's like if you go to the VA, I mean, it's like how how high quality is that stuff? But uh, it it is a cash payment system, and so uh, there's actually this was brought up by the Oversight Committee in the House uh, after the kerfuffle in Iraq involving Blackwater, and it was pointed out that uh, these security guards are getting paid at $1,200 a day. Uh, and that's about six times what it costs a, a U.S. soldier to get. And then Eric Prince basically just responded with what I was claiming is that, well, you know, these guys, uh, they're, the U.S. soldier is not just dropped in, you know, with no prior cost uh, associated with him. I mean, the guy has to be trained. He has to be housed. I mean, he's given a pension. He's given all this medical services. And so the costs do somewhat balance out. But you know, I'm not taking away what you're saying. I mean, you, you can make a lot of money doing this, obviously. Uh, but as for the Chinese getting into it full time, um, I think actually one of the reasons they're hiring Eric Prince, and I hadn't really thought about this until we were just discussing it, but I'm, I'm speculating here. But I think one of the reasons they might be doing that is to kind of get around the accusations of human rights violations. So if they're using a Westerner, 
you know, they have some plausible deniability. They can kind of throw him under the bus if if his company yeah. does something that gets them in hot water. That extends that extends similarly to domestic black operations and false Absolutely. flag, either Absolutely. domestic or abroad. It allows a lot more plausible deniability and room to you know burn whatever the connections may be. Right. Yeah, and, and that 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 model has been active. Gosh, probably ever since the end of the. Second World War. I mean, there's really the United States hasn't declared war. I don't even. I don't think Korea was even declared. It was basically a police action through the UN, and the declaration of war has not happened since the Second World War in the United States. And so, this model of war by other means seems to really just be how things are being done now. You know, the 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 flagless army seems seems to be the way that most, uh, most operators are pursuing. Yeah. It's basically sheep dipping writ large. Right. Right. So I think that we should also like try and, uh, distinguish here that we, I think on a previous episode, we talked about defense, the big defense contractors. And most of those that we were speaking about are really, uh, the weapons manufacturers, uh, the, the product manufacturers. Then there's a whole list of companies uh, like DynCorp and mm-hmm. Halliburton. Uh, Halliburton in particular is uh, probably the leader in this uh, that maintain what I would just call the services infrastructure. Um, they, they did in Iraq, and I, I, I just yeah. got to believe that that was because, you know, they... they oh, I mean, the, Halliburton has the, been The good old boys from in, Texas, but... Um, Halliburton and its predecessors have been involved in this stuff since the Vietnam. Uh, they were doing engineering jobs, and there was another company. Well, yeah, they're they're bread and butter. I haven't looked at the numbers, but my my assumption is that most of their revenue still come from oil services. Now I, I could be wrong about that, but my impression was that that's the majority of what they do, and they they did branch off into kind of this logistics support stuff because a lot of what oil services is is basically you know, getting the pipe and the engineer and the helicopter there in the right place at the right time. And it's sort of like a war zone in a, in, in a way. It's like you have to, you know, meet critical deadlines and there's a lot of risk involved and things like that. Um, so uh, that that's that's their sort of heritage to my understanding. But I didn't know about the Vietnam stuff. So if you... Yeah, so in Vietnam, there was basically this, uh, this group called Pacific Architects Engineers. And... They basically did um, a ton of the work that the Army Corps of Engineers was supposed to be doing, um, and we and a lot of the people that ended up working for this company ended up going to Halliburton and kind of helping build up Halliburton's contracting business. Uh, and Vinell was another company that was doing a lot of like logistics support. Um, so Halliburton got into this business of providing this services complex of a mi- it's really a mix of um, civil and um, civil and infrastructure engineering, uh, facilities maintenance, and logistics for all kinds of things for food, for water, for uh, products, for you know consumer goods toilet paper, everything you need to basically maintain an army abroad. Uh, and then there's there's a there's a category of companies that are like CACI International that are a mix of um, security contractors. They're like a mix of security contractor, think tank, and um, uh, sort of consulting services. 
CACI w- were the uh, the brain children behind Abu Ghraib. If you if any of you guys remember that, that was basically a private military contractor. Well, Nick, Nick Nick led a show on that uh, a few yeah. months ago. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's not just the logistics resources and the trigger pulling that is being contracted out. You also have psychological warfare. I mean, there was a it was I think the the Lincoln Group, and they were the ones who were planting stories in the Iraqi press, you know, saying how great it was that Uncle Sam had arrived, <laughs> which kind of completes the circle when you think about it. It's like the original psychological warfare was being developed by the private sector in Madison Avenue, and then was contracted out to the government. And it goes back around. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'd be interested. I, I was I was recently watching um, the Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that that shit is miserable. That's like the most that's like the most intense, concentrated dose of boomerism I've ever taken. You know, that like, guy won't get out of my Twitter feed either. There's like this promoted ad that keeps showing up with him like getting off like a bus. I don't know. I I, I get disgusted with it. I scroll by it so quickly. I don't know what the rest of it entails. But every time I see him, I just I just get this this really negative reaction. You you don't need to watch it with the audio on. Well, what you would do, so you could watch it with none of the dialogue audio on and just watch the images and then like the recycled Bob Dylan tracks to know exactly what they're saying. <laughs> did he actually so, invent the ken burns effect where it's like basically just like an old photo that he found and then like the camera scrolls from the the corner to the other corner yeah basically that's, okay yeah wow so it's like watching paint dry and then like, have the most, <laughs> like uninteresting takes possible that's just like you've heard a thousand times well, before what's interesting is that um so I just watched one of the latter episodes, and I've been I've been slowly kind of working my way through it just out of curiosity. And uh, they briefly touched the Phoenix program, which was a psychological uh, and and sort of de- like I don't know how even how to describe it. It was like a mix of police action dis- and psychological. We've work. discussed Phoenix. F- yeah. Phoenix was a yeah. It was it was basically just a terror program where. They had a database hit list, and the idea was to be able to take out certain targeted individuals and yeah. put pressure on local political. Yeah, it was by- it was CIA it, Colby, I believe, and basically they just they didn't have a flag. It was like, okay, we're either false flag or no flag. We're not associated with the U.S. military because the U.S. military can't do what it needs to do, and so we're going to fill in the gap, basically. And well, my point was that uh, a lot of the Phoenix program stuff, I believe, is still classified. Some elements are still classified. And what's never been revealed was, was there any consulting services done? Like, was the CIA, and they probably, you know, contracted out to various individuals or groups for assistance in crafting the program. Um, well, the, the, Phoenix went, the Phoenix went global after Vietnam. Yeah. And basically, that was the exact model that the CIA exported to client governments. But it was basically used at Abu Ghraib. Some of those techniques wound up being utilized I, by I just, CACI. You know, Hans, it would have been nice if you had been on the episode because <laughs> this is what I discussed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, basically, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. So anyways, <laughs> uh, basically, I think that there, there's important distinctions here because it's easy to just say, oh, these are all private military corporations, and they all are. 
But I think that what we're really focusing on and sort of that Metal Gear Solid-esque PMC is this notion of uh, a company that really is providing mercenary services. Now, in Metal Gear Solid, it's much, much more dystopian in that the companies that provide the weaponry and provide the services also provide the mercenaries. Um, and that's sort of the nightmare scenario, right, where you have basically a literal private military in that it can manufacture and maintain its own weapon supply, maintain its own logistics, maintain its own communications infrastructure, and maintain its own combat personnel and support personnel. Um, there is nothing like that that really exists in its current in a, in a form well, right it's, now. It's interesting to speculate, uh, though, about that. Yeah, but Hans, the, that's the dream. It's outer haven. I know, I know. And, and that's where soldiers can that be soldiers. To an extent, that's where things are going. Um, and it does exist basically. Once we get Metal Gear. Right. That's the key. I think that, so Remember if, that, if the PMC world is going anywhere, um, and Eric Prince is actually, we'll, we'll start talking about him. He is definitely a bellwether for this, especially the modern Eric Prince. Like the Eric Prince of 10 years ago was a shithead who basically like, you know, ran around the planet with, a bunch of former spec ops guys who wanted to shoot people. Uh, and it was very crude. It was very ineffective. He got in trouble. He got a lot of people killed. He got a lot of people's careers ruined. Um, and it was a disaster. Uh, but the modern Eric Prince is definitely attempting something much more grand and uh, that he is attempting to combine multiple elements of these different sectors of the PMC economy into a single company or to a single uh, mission, typically. Um, so well, his company know. now it's called a Frontier Services, yeah. I believe, uh, and its job or its its sort of uh, publicly facing job is to basically keep keep the resources flowing for whoever is hiring them, and they're out in places that have very unstable governments, i.e., Africa, and because uh, China makes half the world's uh, processed steel now, they. They need to get those resources from somewhere, and a big place they get it is Africa, Australia. They don't have this issue, obviously. They just uh, they pay you know the highest bidder. Nobody's nobody's going to steal the iron ore at the at the port, but in Africa they they'll 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 do what they can to to capture things through theft. And so his job as uh, Frontier Services is to provide escorts uh, for any trucks uh, to stop any. Uh, hostages being taken uh, to stop any looting of any particular uh, easily traded commodities like diamonds uh, and oil and oil uh, pipelines are a typical target for uh, terrorists who want to uh, basically get concessions from the government uh, in order to not basically bomb the pipeline, which is the main source of revenue for a lot of these governments because the tax collection is very ineffective there. And so, you know, if the Chinese Wait, are offering Adam. to build something for the government, you know, then they can offer this more credibly by having some security service to back that up. Yeah, Nick. Did, did you say that he is, it was called Militaire Sans Frontier? <laughs> Close. Close. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I have in my research for this, I have a quote here. Uh, it goes, uh, it goes, war has changed. It's no longer about nations, ideologies, or ethnicity. It's an endless series of proxy battles fought by mercenaries and machines. <laughs> Is that Solid Snake? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, 
Yeah, well, when you told me to, I asked you for some reading for this episode. Oh, you did? I've been oh, talking about doing this for a while. Oh. Well, yeah, don't you don't remember what you said? Is You told me to just play the Metal Gear Solid games. This must have been a ways, ways back. <laughs> well, okay. yeah. I, I was doing my homework, man. I don't know. Hey, I was. Hey, I did my homework. I played my. I played Metal Gear. You know, yeah. I wish that was an actual conversation in the school somewhere. So, from what I understand, Prince is now basically running his own private air force in Africa. I don't know if you guys have, were seeing this, but this is some of this was leaked by the Intercept a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Do this we trust the Intercept? Element. Isn't that where Snowden? No, no, we uh, we can't trust the intercept. The intercept's interesting. Yeah. I could talk about the intercept for a while. Yeah, but I mean, that's the Pierre Omidyar publication, yeah. and that is where Glenn Greenwald writes for now. Exactly. And yeah, it's a. I mean, they have some good stories, but yeah, I would read with immense suspicion. Right. Right. Just curious. Okay, Hans, you were saying. I mean, effectively, uh, th- this is from. Uh, let's see. Three years ago, I have the article pulled up. Uh, inside Eric Prince's treacherous drive to build a private air force. Uh, so effectively, that word uh, treachery, though, I mean, and I'm going to yeah. be very sort of uh, thirty thousand feet for a second. Again, historically, this is not unusual, and I, I don't. It, it really yeah. is. I mean, if, if you just want to be sort of cold and logical about this, the notion that only the government can have a military is kind of a new thing. And given how bad our governments are, I mean, shit, I don't, I don't really care at this point if, if uh, there are private contractors out there working for other agents as long as they're better than what we've got. So I'll, I'll hold my further commentary until you're finished, Hans. Yeah, so basically Prince was trying to build a network of various small companies that were, you know, private uh uh, airplane contractors and airplane mechanics uh, and airplane and outfitters for various yeah, you know, customized that's aircraft That's pretty common. Purposes. That, that's what DynCorp does. That's where they're, yeah, they came yeah, from, yeah. actually. But yeah, and so he, and he, you know, I think that he, he wanted to have, the, the strategy seems to be that he is trying to avoid as much suspicion as possible, A, because he is, I mean, as the article says, he is America's most well-known mercenary. He is a public figure. Everyone knows who he is, um, and so his strategy has been to sort of work in the shadows, not build a cohesive company like DynCorp, you know, a billion-dollar company with a public profile. Uh, instead, he runs shell companies and he contracts with various companies for specified purposes, including this one company called uh, Airborne Technologies, which was uh, like basically south of Vienna in Austria, and. Uh, he basically had them modifying uh, a Thrush five, uh, 510G crop duster, and uh, it was basically meant to support bombing, interdiction bombing, and reconnaissance activities if necessary, uh, amongst other potential purposes. So he was running around the world to various sort of uh, private airplane contractors and getting them to make specialized aircraft for a project he was doing in South Sudan. Uh, and then it was revealed that he was this frontier services group that he had built uh, was really now was now had a lot of contracts in the Middle East and North Africa uh, area and also sub-Saharan Africa like South Sudan. And, 
he you know he basically is attempting to replicate uh, i think some of the metal gear solid ideas with probably without realizing it that um you, you need to combine if you really want to do this properly and i'm not saying that i support this but if you really want to do this properly and achieve maybe the best results as a pmc you would combine several elements of the various sectors of this economy into a single company or into a single network of companies with you know clear contractual relationships with each other year over year um, that allow you to have a constant uh, internal supply of product and material and hardware to use as well as the support staff and combat personnel to utilize them and the global logistics and communications network that you either buy or you make internally or you buy then modify internally uh, it really seems like Prince is trying to redefine the modern kind of security firm in that he is uh, doing it in a way that is avoiding a lot of public attention, but he's also building a network of companies that will you know, maintain a consistent supply of, uh, of warfare that he can contract out. You know, Hans, this is an interesting thought because if you had some kind of you know, international firm that was basically capable of supplying all the necessary services to that are basic to a state. And you had some substantial capital resources behind you. I mean, you would, by definition, if you were able to do something like that. You could, in theory, find a small country that is positioned in just the right place and through you know, the auspices of being like, oh, yes, we're going to be contracting the necessary services for this country, in theory, make that country a shell, a shell state for your private military corporation and, you know, basically create uh, Outer Haven. Yeah, I was going to say Outer Haven. I mean, basically, you know who that is, and this has already happened in history. This was the British East India, East India Company. This, yeah. I mean, this this has already been done. Yeah, the, the Dutch the had something state. similar to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, the moving corporate state with its own land. Uh, Hudson Bay Company happened. was very similar yeah. in that regard as well. Uh, that, that's actually where the company comes from. It was a state-chartered project to go out and capture resources. But in this case, though, the state would definitely be the junior partner. Because you would be, you know, in, yeah. in the modern case, you'd be doing this with a state uh, that is just gives you enough sort of pretense that you're not acting as the state, but you you own it through and through. Well, Which it's kind I guess of, is a debatable question when it comes to something like the East India Company. I mean, that's a complex subject. But. Sure, it's kind of the evolution of where our civilization has gone in a way because the. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. I don't think anybody in power honestly believes in democracy. They may pay it lip service, but they believe that they are better than the hoi polloi. And they're, they're there to kind of maintain their power, extend their power. Think everybody in the Beltway and everybody in the establishment in the East Coast. These people are not out for the people. They're out for their own power. And the way they've done that for the last 30 plus years has basically been through the private sector, the corporations, the, the business sector, and that, that's gone global. And so they're already sort of operating in transnational venues where they don't have a home base per se. It's very rootless. Uh, and they, they need security services, uh, and they do hire security services at their little shindigs in Davos, and they have uh, – 
I mean, all these people who want to get rid of guns, I mean, they, they typically have armed guards protecting them as they travel. Uh, if they even take, you know, public transportation uh, or the highway or something like that. I mean, if you look at the guys who, you know, roll through on their, uh, their campaign contribution tours, these are the politicians, they have very well-armed motorcades. Uh, and so I can just imagine this model this- being applied to everywhere. And, and the, the, the CEOs have the same thing. And so... Uh, go ahead, Nick. This is true in as, as a general sense because what you're talking about, and I think what explains the rise of these, is effectively the decline of the state. You have, you know, the modern Western liberal democratic state is so bloated and has taken on so many functions that it of uh, cross purposes and it has really no purpose being engaged in to the point where the very important functions it neglects because those aren't important to the, the current owners and managerial elite of that state so that when something really needs to get done it ends up getting privatized and so you see that apparently in war fighting now but you see it everywhere else when you start talking about the elite you know they're just very wealthy maybe not even necessarily power players but what very wealthy people well what do they do when they post up somewhere and it's a little bit out of the conventional living of the urban centers you know they basically just hire private firms to get everything everything that's not the way that they want it or doesn't fit their standards and needs or what have you they can contract it out and have it get done mm-hmm. anything i mean you name the service there's a you can there's some private company that will deliver this for, for them if the when the service is you know on paper is supposed to be something i mean it's take something as simple as private roads well they build a private road you they want to live somewhere there's no road and well you just fucking build one yeah the the sort of um I mean, if you look at uh, how international trade is conducted, it's very funny how a lot of these container ships that roll through the ports are flagged in these random countries that basically just give them like really good uh, legal or tax concessions. And so you'll you'll see like this giant uh, Maersk, which is a Danish shipping company, uh, ship roll under the bridge of uh, San Francisco or New York Harbor, and they're flagged from like uh, Liberia. I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, and then the same thing applies to Eric Prince's operations. I mean, he's got like, something going on. Frontier Services Group, LTD, whatever that relationship is, Frontier Services Group, who the hell knows? Ask some crooked lawyer to explain it to you. But basically, they're headquartered in Bermuda. And that was a big tax haven that the British set up after the Second World War to basically launder money. And so these companies, they're, again, they're, they're transnational. They don't have any real roots. Uh, if you want to call that the state, this I would call isn't it the private. nation. But, I mean, the, it's, it's a transnational thing. The, the nation is, is sort no, of taking I'm, back seat. Go ahead. I'm definitely talking specifically about the state. Yeah. But yeah. I, on that point, I guess, it's not a private firm. Well, I guess it is a private firm. You tell me. But, but after what happened in Seattle, uh, the WTO relocated to, like, Qatar. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a long time ago. That was like 20 years ago at this point. Yes, it was. Yeah. You, you know what's interesting that I don't think anyone's considered? There's a ton of island nations that basically have very tenuous governments in Micronesia and all over the That's Pacific. That's where the seasteaders are going, by the way. Yeah. How Dude. hard would it be to just knock one of those governments out? And are, are, are you familiar with, like, uh, what's his name? The libertarian guy, Doug Casey, the capitalist. The guy was in uh, Mexico. No, no, we've, that's another like big funny blow up of 
you know, the anarchist capitalist types. That was, that, that was, I, we talked about that at some point. There's you mentioned it that's Jeff, like a year ago. That's the Jew, yeah. Doug, Jeff Berwick. Yeah. Okay. No, Doug Casey's been around for a while. Uh, he, I think he tried to set up some like Randian uh, experiment in Latin America, I think Argentina or something. But more interesting is back in the seventies when they, they were trying to do things like this and they were trying, Doug Casey was tangential. He's the one person that people might know who's involved, but uh, he was doing it for these ideological reasons. I don't know what connections that guy probably has. Uh, he probably does, in fact, have CIA connections because what was happening is they were in the 70s. There were a bunch of spooks who were getting involved with some money men to try to do that sort of thing in both the Caribbean and like Tonga, I think, was another place where they attempted this. Wow. Yeah, the dream of outer heaven, man, goes back for a while. So, what are we? What we can are talk we about Denunzio too. I mean, that that's a episode I think in of itself. Go ahead. Well, just Denunzio's attempt to establish outer heaven. I mean, this has been done by people of various sort of ideological bents. I mean, it's it's. Well, it's, I, I okay. So I, I have just a general statement here, but listening to all the conversations about or all the examples of where these types of operations are taking place. It's as, as you said, Nick, it's basically where the state is very weak. Uh, and the, and that, that's been historically true as well. I mean, basically the, the biggest, biggest army is going to win. And when the army that the, the official establishment has is falling apart, I mean, you're, you're basically going to see what happened what we saw happen in, in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had essentially a, a huge number of oligarchs emerge that were using private military services to protect their own resources and, and knock off competitors. Uh, it, it, it's just a recurring theme where you see a, a general breakdown in order. Uh, you're going to have emerging rivals come up. Oh, and, read The Man Who Would Be King or, this, or watch the movie. Which is an excellent film. Yeah, yeah. So in this case, yeah. it's basically this is the man who would be a big boss. Right. Who is big boss? I think that was sort of the the running uh, running theory throughout the, the game series. I think it was a woman at one point, and then it was, uh, but she was like using the DNA of somebody else. That that's a that's a very long tangent. We don't need to get into, but it was uh, basically the big boss is essentially the the ultimate soldier, from what I what I understand. That's the canonical soldier that all soldiers are supposed to aspire to be who dreamed of creating for those of you who don't know what we're talking about it outer heaven is from this cult video game series it's just the idea of a, a mercenary nation which is kind of strange and cartoony as that sounds in a certain sense there are plenty of examples that we have at least been bringing up and we could get into further examples of this that it is something doable. Of course, you're always going to have to deal with the big neighboring powers, whatever those may be. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there are various corporate. I mean, look at uh, look at oil companies uh, housing, like their employee housing in places yep. like in Saudi Arabia or, or Dubai or what have you. They're basically little nations into in of themselves. They have to deliver all the necessary services. They don't, and they're existing inside of another state where something like Islamic law is being enforced. So they, they really are a parallel nation that mm-hmm. has to take care of themselves and lives totally separate from the you know surrounding power. 
And, Nick, Nick, have you it, seen the movie uh, Dogs of War with Christopher Walken? Oh, yeah, that's an old school one. Yeah, that's yeah. the one where they're doing the in uh, Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, uh, on that subject, there's the film, <laughs> we're talking about film, The Kingdom, which I think is like a Peter Berg movie. But that's, I won't say it's a very good movie as far as the cast goes. Uh, it's, it's, kinda, it's got some good shootouts, but that's the premise is basically a crime takes place on one of these uh, oil company uh, housing facilities. And so that for whatever reason, because of it's technically America, I guess the FBI gets involved and they're having to sort of navigate the ways of the surrounding kingdom, which I don't know if they ever explicitly say it's Saudi Arabia or not. There's kind of a trend of that in their mid two thousands movies where they didn't want to give the American viewer like too many specifics. Syriana is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, where, where does this take place? Well, kind of Syria, kind of Iran, you know? We don't really want to say. We don't want to give uh, the Goyim too many ideas. Because that movie actually gets into... That's based off Robert Bear, who's probably still working as a disinformation agent. But He wrote the book, really uh, the Hear No Evil, See No Evil. Yeah. C- CIA, former CIA. Well, former. Former, quote-unquote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't ever leave. <laughs> You're never, you're never a former CIA. I think, as as Jazz Hand said on the most on one of the recent fascinations, you just get a new assignment. Yeah, you never really leave the agency. Well, it's sort of like the the generals in the Pentagon. I mean, they they just go work for Lockheed or Raytheon. God, those guys are fucking scum. They just like they never leave. <laughs> They just don't want to retire. Like they'll they work for forty years in the military and then they go cash out for another fifteen and just grease the wheels and, and get bad contracts approved and pull strings. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't know how they take themselves seriously. I, I just don't. I mean, I guess the ability for self delusion is pretty unlimited in human beings, but it it just boggles my mind how they can like put on the uniform and feel like they're patriots and meanwhile you know, our, our nation's falling apart and they're, they're bankrolling uh, Raytheon's bombing of this this peasant, not even, I don't even know if they're peasants, they're like herders or something in Yemen. I mean, it's just, would you feel like a, a soldier when you do that? I, I don't get it. No, I just don't get you it. do have to wonder on a recurring theme that Adam talks about, <clears throat> in the event of some kind of serious conflagration happening in the United States, uh, what role security firms would be taking in that? Obviously, we know that when it comes to the elite, that's exactly who they're going to be contracting right. to maintain their security, their you know private gated neighborhoods. But I wonder, you know, if uh, you had a firm that was maybe a little bit more friendly to the interests of the American people that was created, <laughs> uh, if it would be possible to hold any significant territory uh, by, you know, we're going to secure your guys's property. You see. Well, how how'd the IRA operate? What what was their uh, mo? They they, they had donation donation question. only <laughs> operation. Or <laughs> I think there was a lot of car bombs involved in their their whole mo. Well, I heard that they actually were. Those were are exploding the... security devices. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I heard the IRA basically existed because of the. The pubs <laughs> in Boston were were funding them. I don't know how they got the. Oh money yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like half the state of Massachusetts was was funding the IRA at one point. I mean, they had to when Ronnie Reagan was president. The British government had to like tell him to 
they pleaded with him to cut it off, like because it was getting insane. Uh, the IRA also did a lot of what people called they called them assassinations, but what they were were preemptive defensive removals. Oh, sort of like the U.S. government attacking. You name the country, preemptive war. Yeah, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. War to stop war. Yeah, I, I would, I would a hundred percent believe that if the situation unwinds in the United States, uh, you would definitely see a lot of these private military contractors be deployed. Well, I'll, I'll give you a scenario, and I, I heard this. I'm not going to name the source out of respect, but it was, uh, it was interesting. Probably you could, anybody who listens to this, they were used knows. in Katrina. They, I believe, Blackwater was used in Katrina. Yeah, that, that's plausible. Um, what I was going to say, though, is just imagine this scenario. You talk about, you know, preemptive strikes. I mean, just think of how, how bounty systems work. And you just put on an anonymous blockchain a contract out for whoever. Let's just say you, you want somebody taken care of uh, and you put up a bounty. And th- there's no tracing it, basically. If that person gets um, gets knocked off, you obviously have to then get get access to the wallet and everything like that, and you have to basically take the risk that the guy is not going to pay you. But it, 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 it's foreseeable that you could anonymously contract contract this stuff out in a very distributed way, which is something we've never seen before. And it, it might get crazy because of the way drones are progressing. I mean, drones really just open up. I mean, let's go back in history for a second and talk about how the musket effectively uh destroyed the feudal system because what what happened was the the knights that were working for the local lord in his manor were trained from basically their their childhood to become uh, elite professional soldiers that nobody else could really do i mean you, you couldn't afford to care for a horse and have the armor made i mean this is before you know mass production this was basically like nobody could afford you know a suit of armor let alone a you know a suit of armor and a sword and a horse and all that stuff so these guys were were basically only employable by the richest of the rich but what happened though when gunpowder and the the rifle and the musket were basically introduced was you could effectively topple these guys over on a bigger scale by just hiring all the peasants around them. And that, that, that was the emergence of the, the national army. And so that was sort of a game changer, how that basically just broke the medieval order. I mean, the, the castles were basically destroyed by gunpowder too with the, the cannon shot. I think drones are, are, are potentially going to do the same thing to warfare in the sense that you can anonymously attack people and also send these drones on suicide missions whereby you couldn't send really most people, setting aside our, our Muslim friends, most people are not going to go on suicide missions or our Japanese friends for that matter, but most people won't do that. But you can do that to a robot. And provided that you can control it remotely or program it to, to, go, to follow a, a, a preset plan uh, like the allegedly the Iranians did or the Yemenis, we don't really know at this point, to attack the uh, Saudi Arabian refineries that just blew up. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. You're seeing that in Ukraine. And I think, uh, you know, if things heat up in the United States, we're going to see it. We're already seeing it, actually, although this is not really well known. Uh, the U.S. military is, is sending uh, drones uh, throughout the domestic territory of the United States uh, to spy on people, basically. 
and it's not talked about, but th this is already being done by the military. So, you know, th this stuff is very open source, very cheap stuff, and I would anticipate this this proceeding. I mean, you can you can put anything you want on a drone. You can put a gun on it. That's already been done. There's a YouTube video on it. You can put a bomb on the thing. I mean, you can do anything. It's the democratization of war, and it's just like how Metal Gear ended the nation-state's monopoly on nuclear warfare. Thank <laughs> you.